I V M. Other elements of what she was saying. I don't know, Putin. I think it would be great if we got along with Russia because we could fight ISIS together as an example, but I don't know, Putin. But I notice anytime anything wrong happens, they like to say the Russians, the Russians, she doesn't know if it's the Russians doing the hacking. Maybe there is no hacking, but they always blame Russia. And the reason they blame Russia is because they think they're trying to tarnish me with Russia. I know nothing about Russia. I know, I know about Russia, but I know nothing about the inner workings of Russia. I don't deal there. I have no businesses. I have no loans from Russia. You're listening to States of Anarchy, and I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. What you just heard was an excerpt from the 2016 presidential election debate in the US. In 2017, the three US intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA, said that the Russian government systematically worked to undermine Hillary Clinton and to weaken the American democracy during the elections. Since then, there's been a lot of drama in the United States because the FBI director was fired, the attorney general recused himself, some others have pled guilty. But you can catch up on all of that online or in the House of Cards. What we're going to be talking about instead is election interference, what it means for democracies, and what India should consider since we're going to hold our Lok Sabha elections this year. My guests on today's show are David Salvo and Brett Schaefer, Both of them work at the Alliance for Securing Democracy of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. They've both been working intensely on looking at foreign interference in the U.S. elections. We'll be back after a short break. Hi, David and Brett. Welcome to the show. So when we're talking about election interference, there's a lot that people, particularly in the United States, are talking about um, Russia or China or just generally um, election interference seems to be back in vogue again. So is this a new phenomenon? How old is election interference? Well, authoritarian regimes have been interfering in democratic processes like elections, you know, since democracies have been having elections. But uh, what's changed is the the technology that allows these regimes to interfere with much greater reach and impact than they might have had, say, during the 20th century, during the Cold War. So, you know, what we see today are uh, cyber attacks that probe voting infrastructure, everything from the, the actual voting mechanisms to voter registration databases. Um, so the possibility to disenfranchise voters exists, the possibility to change voting results exists. But more detrimentally, the possibility to affect the psychology of a society uh, exists. And that can be done through uh, disinformation campaigns, information manipulation across the social media and traditional media landscape, where all, all an authoritarian regime has to do is plant the idea that it can affect the outcome of a vote, even if they don't change any numbers at all. And that really affects how you know, democratic society, democratic citizenry feels confident in their elections. So there are all sorts of ways in which uh, authoritarian regimes can impact a political environment without even changing the, the nature of the vote itself. 
Yeah, I understand that it gets down to legitimacy, right? Because you want the government that you vote for to be a legitimate one. But is it that just authoritarian governments indulge in election interference? Isn't it, say, in the national interests of a lot of states to indulge in election interference? I mean, if the question is, do democracies interfere in non-democratic elections, I think the answer is no on two fronts. One, it would be antithetical to democratic practice to do that. And B, authoritarian regimes quite successfully hold false or fabricated elections. So it's an entirely different uh, issue, I'd say. The strength of democracies is that they hold free and fair elections, that they have open and transparent societies, but that's also a vulnerability that authoritarian regimes exploit. Okay. So you're saying that election interference is fundamentally different from a state that's batting for something like regime change? I see them as as different issues, yes. All right. Okay. So do democracies fundamentally um, suffer, say, a structural weaknesses because they have elections? I don't think it's a structural weakness that they have elections. I think it's, there are structural weaknesses within the defenses of those systems um, that any democratic government can improve upon. It won't be infallible, but they can certainly, for example, in the case of the United States, there are cyber vulnerabilities to our electoral infrastructure that have improved, say, since 2016, but they're not they're, they're far from perfect and need to get better. Um, but then there are also the, the societal vulnerabilities that authoritarian regimes exploit. I mentioned earlier how you know, an authoritarian regime just needs to plant the idea that the integrity of the electoral process is tainted somehow. Well, you know, they can spread that message not through a cyber attack, but through an information operation. So it, there are all sorts of, of tools and tactics that the, these regimes can use to undermine confidence in uh, the elect the integrity of an elector of an election. Okay, could you speak to me a little bit about the elections in 2016 uh, in the U.S.? What exactly happened? Like, I'm sitting in India and I'm not very familiar with U.S. politics. So, what were the concerns about the 2016 elections? Well, there are quite a few. I I think it's established fact, and the U.S. intelligence community has a unanimous issued a unanimous conclusion that the Russian government waged an interference operation against the 2016 elections um, to support the candidacy of Donald Trump and undermine the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Um, but the Russian operation was much broader than just supporting one particular candidate. What, but I think before Donald Trump was ever on the Kremlin's radar, they were amplifying divisions between Americans across social media platforms, making sure that polarizing content was viewed and shared much more extensively. And the operation that the Russians conducted against the election was, it, it didn't just end with the election, it's ongoing today. So what we see are Russian government linked accounts across social media platforms, amplifying divisive content to try to drive a wedge even further between Republicans and Democrats or you know, Americans of all political affiliations. Okay, so from what you're saying, I understand that there are two things that um, and a country like Russia could want to affect. One is to simply provide support to one candidate over the other or one party over the other. And the other is to fundamentally 
affect the outcome of the or the end process of the election irrespective of who turns up right so one is support for one party and the other is sort of a process right it uh, affects the society of the state in which they are interfering and that fundamentally affects the way people vote the way people think about different issues uh, would that be a good summation of what you said yeah i think so i mean you can also you can think of it as they're trying to influence the electorate as much as an election so they talk about issues so the same issues that voters care about and why they turn up at the polls and why they vote the way they do they're trying to sort of move the needle of how the population thinks about certain hot button issues whether that's race or immigration or economics so they're spreading disinformation to try to influence the way people vote without ever actually talking about the candidates sometimes and i think you can also look at it as there's there's two ways these sort of information operations work one is it can inspire people to action so it can get people to vote a certain way based on fearmongering or by trying to denigrate a certain candidate the other is it can inspire people to inaction so by promoting this idea that democracy is illegitimate or all the candidates are equally corrupt you then kind of inspire people to not turn up and vote at all so we've also seen things like voter suppression being used so there are multiple ways that you can influence an election without actually going in and changing a single vote and again one of those is to try to specifically talk about a candidate or a policy the other is to talk broadly about the sort of health of democracy and certain issues which influences a vote just as much as talking about an individual candidate or leaking emails from a specific campaign that would damage that candidate so there are multiple multiple different ways that an authoritarian regime can influence an election all right and why would they fundamentally want to do this why would they look at changing say the fabric of american society well i think if you look at through the kremlin's lens of america being an adversary a weaker america is seen as a benefit to the russian government so if we're fighting amongst ourselves and if we're divided we're not really paying attention to what they're doing uh both internally and also in their so-called near abroad so if you have a divided weakened america that is seen as a plus for the russian government because if we are not unified in pushing back against what they're doing again that is a benefit to them so they don't need to actually talk about russian issues or um you know support their own image around the world the way they seem to work now is to it's not as much to say russia is better than everyone else it's to say everyone is just as bad as russia and to try to hold down everyone else and, and to kind of amplify these internal infighting issues to make sure that not only within america but also america and its european allies uh present a less unified front to russian aggression there's a domestic political component to the russian operations abroad as well i mean democracy is is inimical to any autoc- autocratic state in the case of of russia you have a corrupt kleptocratic government that essentially steals from its people uh in order to pay the various people who prop up the regime. And so it's convenient for the Kremlin to be able to point a finger at, at democracies like the United States and say they can't even hold free and fair elections without being consumed by 
questions about its integrity. So how, you know, why would you want to be to live in a democratic country like the United States when they can't even get their act together? Wouldn't you rather live in a stable country with a stable leadership, stable ruling power like Russia? So there's a domestic component to what they do as well. Sure. And I'm not sure if this is the case with Donald Trump, but in a lot of other countries where uh, there have been claims of election interference, there's also been a case for changing the foreign policy of that country, right? The idea, at least in this case, would be that you have a foreign policy that's uh, more accommodating of Russia. Uh, would that stand true in case of America? Sure. I mean, there, there's no secret. President Putin has said himself that uh, he supported Trump's candidacy over Hillary Clinton's. And that is because he thought that Trump uh, policy towards Russia would be much more accommodating of Moscow's positions. I mean, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, it was not a secret that there was great animosity between uh, her and President Putin, that he saw her policies as aggressive towards Russia. She actively put, and the Obama administration pushed back on Russian aggression in its near abroad. Um, and so the President Putin also thought that the State Department had a hand behind protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg back in 2011 and 2012, uh, protesting clearly falsified elections that Russia held. So, you know, from the vantage point of the Kremlin, it was an obvious choice that Donald Trump couldn't possibly be any worse than a Clinton presidency. All right. Okay. Is it that there is more animosity from the Democrat side towards the Russians than the Republicans? Would that be a fair assessment? No. In fact, historically, the Republican Party has always been more hawkish towards Russia than the Democrats. I think what people lose sight of in amidst all the politicized arguments about what happened in the 2016 election is that there's pretty broad bipartisan consensus on policy towards Russia. Congress has been united in uh, wanting to impose more sanctions on Russia for its aggression in eastern Ukraine, for its annexation of Crimea, for its interference in the election. Um, so I think we lose sight of the fact that Republicans and Democrats generally sing from the same sheet of music when it comes to policy towards Russia. And if you look at the administration's policies, although the messaging has been inconsistent, uh, the policies haven't changed all that drastically. All right. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsini Hariharan. So, Brett, will you speak to me a little bit about the midterms? There was also a worry um, that there was going to be more election interference during the American midterms that happened in November. So uh, how did that pan out? Well, I think a lot of people were looking for a similar kind of operation to occur as occurred during 2016. So they were expecting a major leak of campaign emails. They were expecting voter rolls to be probed. That didn't happen. So this narrative sort of uh, started emerging in the U.S. that Russia sat this election out or didn't do anything. And that's just fundamentally not true, because for the past year uh, or two years since 2016, we've seen them on social media talking to American audiences every single day. So the fact that they didn't necessarily um, try to support an individual candidate in the same way they did with Donald Trump doesn't mean that they didn't interfere at all in the election, because, of course, they were talking again about the issues 
that voters care about and that they would make their decisions about when they actually went to the polls. And what we also saw, again, was this effort to delegitimize the elections by talking about voter suppression or voter fraud. And we saw that especially actually in the aftermath of the vote itself. So, you know, we had potentially a recount that was going to happen in Florida. We had a close race in Arizona. So in the week or a week and a half afterwards, we saw these Russian accounts on social media really amplifying those narratives that maybe uh, illegal votes were cast, that the vote couldn't be trusted. So, yes, it was a little bit different from 2016 because we didn't see an effort to really get behind an individual candidate. But we did see a continuation of an effort to degrade trust among the American public in terms of the election results themselves. Okay. So I was actually there during the American elections as well. And it was very interesting to see how a lot of those narratives played out. But there was also this debate about the difference between influence and interference and where that line gets drawn. What do you guys think about where that is? Well, I think one of the major dividing lines is what happens overtly and what happens covertly. So every single country is engaged in some way at trying to influence populations elsewhere. I mean, the U.S. does it, every major democracy does it, but when the U.S. or the U.K. or Germany or most other democracies uh, try to influence what's happening in other countries, they do it very clearly coming from, in the case of the U.S., say the voice of America. You know where that message is coming from. So yes, we uh, and others try to influence. That's public diplomacy. I think the difference is in terms of interference is when you have these covert social media accounts that are going online saying that they're regular Americans and spreading disinformation as if they were just a regular citizen. So I think that is a major dividing line. Everyone tries to influence, but interference happens when you try to do it uh, covertly in a way that is really a bit more malicious and nefarious, where there's no actual effort to say, hey, we're coming from Russia. We want President Trump to win the election because we think it would be better for Russian-American relations. That, I think, is fine and acceptable. What we saw in 2016 and what has continued are these efforts to say, hey, I'm an American like you. We believe the same things. Oh, by the way, here's, uh, you know, a particular story about Hillary Clinton doing X, Y or Z that really damaged her campaign. So I think that's that's one clear difference is what you do overtly versus covertly. All right. So what can you do to guard against stuff like this? I know you guys at the German Marshall Fund have been trying to do something, but what can you basically do to safeguard a democracy from election interference? I mean, essentially, each each pillar of democratic society has responsibility. So there are many steps that government can take from hardening electoral systems, cyber defenses, to ensuring that political advertisements on, on social media platforms disclose their sources of funding, um, to closing financial loopholes that allow authoritarian regimes to move money into democracies to uh, peddle political influence covertly. So there are all sorts of measures that government can take. In the private sector, obviously the tech platforms have vulnerabilities that uh, the Russian regime and others have exploited to spread disinformation. So they have a responsibility to better secure their platforms. Civil society has an obligation to expose the tools and tactics that authoritarian regimes use to undermine democracies. 
And, you know, they're ordinary citizens too need to consume information with a more critical eye. It, we need to figure out a way to overcome a lot of the partisanship that has sort of infected our civic discourse and allows authoritarian regimes to step in and amplify those divisions. So it's sort of incumbent on, on everyone to, to do a better job of securing our democratic institutions and processes from this sort of interference. That makes sense. Something that you said at the beginning and you um, pointed out again is the role of tech in all of this. So over the last couple of years in the US and elsewhere, there's been a lot going on about fake news or misinformation. And, you know, whether this is media channels or WhatsApp messages or things that happen on various kind of platforms, there seems to be a huge battle that is raging. So is there something that governments can do particularly to, or the private sector can do? It is up to citizens to be mindful of it. But what can the government or the private sector do to guard against stuff like misinformation? Well, I think, you know, what technology is a great community builder, so it can be used for good. I mean, we have seen that in other places that it is, it can be really beneficial for democratic movements to have social media where you can get like-minded people together and organize and push back. So it is not inherently uh, bad to, to have a system in place where you can get people together online. The problem is the ease of getting people together and clustering them in groups can also be, well, one, it can be targeted. So authoritarian countries can see these groups online and they can easily know sort of what they stand for and their weak points. But two, you can also sort of cluster maybe more sort of nefarious groups together online and push people into these filter bubbles where they can be influenced more easily. So tech, you know, it is not fundamentally good or bad. It's how it's used. So it, it requires it requires the users to be a bit more discerning about the data they put online and how they engage with people they don't know. But yes, there needs to be more data privacy and data protection. So that is going to come partly from the private sector of fixing their own issues. I mean, we've seen in the last two years, Twitter and Facebook have been under enormous pressure, which they were not before, about how they are sharing private data with third party companies. And then I think, you know, government is going to have to step in at some level to regulate what these companies are able to share, because people now online are, are living a great deal of their lives out in the open, which, again, for some people, that can be great. It can be used for good, but it, it makes the individual user very vulnerable. So I think governments are going to have to step in when these companies abuse people's private data, which is ultimately also how foreign governments and intelligence services target and then attempt to manipulate people online. All right. So a related question is, there's not only Russia, there are other authoritarian regimes around the world that are looking at election interference, right? Um, I think Mike Pence made a speech at Hudson Institute where he was talking about China and countries like Australia and New Zealand have also been worried about election interference. So there are multiple actors that could be at play here, correct? Yeah, no, that's right. And I think it's also important to, to keep in mind that the focus of regimes like China is not strictly on elections. So the type of 
subversive influence that regimes like China are trying to have in countries like Australia and New Zealand. It's not just about targeting a particular vote. It's about making sure that there are politicians who are going to be friendly towards China. And the way that they're doing that is by, you know, buying off politicians in these countries or by sending money in, you know, through covert means to, you know, end up in political organizations that could then do the the Chinese regime's bidding. So there are all sorts of ways that these countries are trying to extend influence covertly and interfere in democracies um, without necessarily targeting a specific election. All right. Okay. So I have two questions. The first is that recently at, I think, in August or so, the, uh, in front of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, a professor from Oxford, um, Philip Howard, told um, the committee that Russia could be targeting U.S. allies not only in Europe, but also in Brazil and India. And I wanted to check with you guys if that is a real threat. Well, we haven't done kind of specific research into what Russia is doing in Brazil or India, but it's certainly a threat that Russia could do the same thing that they were doing in the U.S. elsewhere. And I think, I mean, it's clear that they are when you talk about you know, again, they're near abroad or Eastern Europe or even in the UK during the uh, Brexit debates. Their, their tentacles are far reaching. So all of this stuff can be replicated basically anywhere people are online. So not only will Russia be a threat in other places, but you'll also see these other governments who want to mimic what Russia is doing because it's frankly been pretty successful to this point. So you're going to see more actors kind of engage in a, a similar kind of behavior online. So we really need to figure out what Russia has done to this point, because it's not just about pushing back against what they did in 2016. It's about figuring out what we need to do to protect ourselves going forward. All right. So this is the last thing that I'm going to be asking you guys. And I want like both of you to answer it. What would be like one essential reading that you would tell people to catch up on if they want to read about election interference or um, Russia or China or 2016 or anything related to election interference? Oh, it's a tough question. <laughs> Who wants to go first? David, Brett? So there is a book and the title is Messing with the Enemy. It is by one of our, our colleagues who's a non-resident fellow here named Clint Watts, who's a former FBI agent who helped us set up our disinformation tracking dashboard. Uh, it is basically about how Russia used social media before, during, and after the 2016 elections. And again, I'm forgetting the specific title, but it's, it's Clint Watts is the name of the author. And it covers basically not just Russia, but how other hackers and others can use the use the Internet and social media for malign purposes. All right. I'll do a little bit of self-promotion and say that our program, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, published a comprehensive policy recommendations report called the Policy Blueprint for Countering Authoritarian Interference in Democracies. And the first half of the report is an analysis of the Russian government's interference, not only in the 2016 election in the United States, but also across Europe over the last couple of decades. So it explains in great detail the, the various tools that the Russian government has used to interfere in democracies um, and how that toolkit has been replicated from country to country. So I think that would give your audience a very 
good overview of the types of interference that we see unfolding across the transatlantic space and the types of interference that can be exported to countries like India as well. So I would start there. All right. Okay, cool. I hope people do check both of this out. Thank you guys so much for taking time out to speak with me today. Of course. Yeah, thanks for having us. What I took away from this conversation was that fault lines in a nation are apparent to someone on the outside. And external actors will definitely want to take advantage of this. Think about this in the case of India. Our communal tensions are apparent now more than ever. And this opens us up to external interference from any country that doesn't want us to focus on our foreign policy. This public mistrust undermines our nation and the strength of its institutions because we're focusing all our resources internally. I doubt if Russia wants to target India, but think about other countries like China or Pakistan that would benefit from us looking inwards rather than outwards. That brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter where my handle is at the rate Hamsini H or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app, website or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'll see you next Tuesday.